Pod Pals, and a very warm welcome back to Best Girl Grip. I'm your host, Nicole Davis, and this is the podcast that navigates the film industry through the lens of the women doing just that. I was a bit delayed publishing this week's episode because, to be honest with you, I've just been really, really tired. And every time I sat down to write or record this intro, I felt a bit drained and just like I couldn't muster the enthusiasm it deserved. And I always want to convey that enthusiasm because it genuinely is very exciting to me that I get to interview these women and I would hate to sound bored or fatigued. So I was sort of waiting for the energy to return so I could match the energy and the eloquence uh, that this week's guest in particular brought to our conversation. That guest is Sandra Hebron, Head of Screen Arts at the National Film and Television School, where she leads the course for the MA in Film Studies, Programming and Curation. Previously, Sandra was Head of Festivals and the Artistic Director of the BFI London Film Festival and Director of Cinemas at Manchester's Corner House. She's also a qualified psychotherapist with a counselling business. We spoke about how she got her start in film exhibition, her time as artistic director of the LFF and what direction she hoped to push it in. In doing so, we touch on ideas of cultural renewal and not staying in positions of power for too long. We talk about curatorial ethics, mentorship and also how her psychotherapy training plays into how she works in the world of film. I got a lot out of speaking with Sandra. I cut it out of the first edit, but there was a moment where I had to check it was okay to run over our allotted time and confess to having a really good time. And I think that was because of a combination of, of Sandra's honesty, the perspective and consideration she gave to the questions um, and the interrogation too. And, you know, it just became a very invigorating interview. So I hope you have as good a time with it as I did. This is episode 101 of Best Girl Grip. So I'd love to know if you went to university and if so, what you studied there. I sort of went to university. So I went to Polytechnic. I went to uh, Sheffield Polytechnic, which now is a university, but wasn't at the time. And in a sense, I'm really pleased that you started with education because for me, I think education was really important. I come from a background where people didn't really go to university and people certainly didn't think about working in film. So for me, having access to higher education was really very, very formative experience, I would say. I studied in Sheffield. I went to Sheffield largely because it was a city that I wanted to live in. It had a great music scene. It had a lot going on. And I didn't study film. So I carry that sense of imposter syndrome with me still. I studied communication studies, which was sort of a mix of cultural studies, media, psychology, linguistics. So it was a very kind of broad-based education, I guess. And I think that's something that I uh, that I carry with me, if you like. I'm very, I have very eclectic taste. I'm very sort of magpie-like in the things that I enjoy. So it was a great course for me. It was also singularly the least vocational course that it was possible to do. That's interesting. And did you go into it or either come out of it with a sense of what you wanted to do afterwards as a career or you kind of were still figuring it out? I didn't go into it with any sense. I mean, I think until that point, because going to university wasn't something that anyone in my family had done. So in a way, going to university or going on to study was the sort of point that I was leading towards. But I didn't really have any sense of what I might do after that. And similarly, when I came out of the course, the course was quite a theoretical course, I would say. And I loved that. I loved all the sort of cultural studies theory of the 1980s, which is when I was studying. And I came out of it with just a vague idea that I might 
not continue to work within the sort of realm of theory. And so I faffed around for a while and Sheffield at that time had a really vibrant independent film scene. It had a great umbrella organisation called Sheffield Independent Film. There were two Channel 4 funded film workshops in Sheffield at that time, Steel Bank Film Co-op and the Sheffield Women's Film Co-op. So there was a lot going on and I got very attracted by the idea of doing something practical and I started to learn how to be a filmmaker through that sort of community of interest if you like and then and I was quite um, pious I think about the idea that I was leaving behind the you know kind of world of theory and that I was going to do this sort of practical work and then one of my old tutors has kind of called me into into the Polly and said what are you doing and I sort of said oh well I'm you know teaching youth workers how to make videos because I don't because I'm sort of done with all this theory and he I mean he was great he just said to me you do realize that it's possible to do both like you can take your theoretical knowledge and integrate it into the practical work but that was a sort of moment of revelation so I started to really think about what I wanted to do. Uh, I then went back into academia where I worked as a researcher for a while and I enjoyed that because I was doing, it was a time when sort of feminist research methodology was very much an emerging area and I really enjoyed that but I didn't want to stay in academia and I think that's when the idea of perhaps working in film started to take a bit more of a hold but it that wouldn't have happened had I not been in Sheffield where film was so much part of the cultural landscape. Well I'm interested in that because we'll come on to this later but I know you like spent a lot of time in kind of Manchester and stayed out of London and I'm wondering you know if that was deliberate or if you saw there being any benefit and whether your career progressed because you were based in the regions outside of London as opposed to coming to the city where maybe it was I don't know more more competitive or just you know not as vibrant in some ways. Yeah I mean I think in a way we almost need to sort of turn that around that idea of seeing London as the place to sort of move to or aspire to that just wasn't I mean in a sense I I had much more of the sense of why would I want to go to London I mean it just wasn't even a question that I asked myself I would have been really happy to kind of stay in the north I never had any aspiration to move to London of course you know later on I needed to be in London some of the time certainly when I was working in Manchester it was never a sort of question that I asked myself and actually before I moved to London I was thinking that I would probably move to New York so coming to London was never it wasn't ever something that appealed to me in fact I had to be slightly persuaded to come here. In truth, when I moved here, I came here thinking that I would stay for a couple of years and see what it was like, but I didn't expect to stay. I think the other thing to sort of say in relation to your question is, sounds a bit disingenuous to say it, but I was never someone who had any kind of strategic approach to what I was going to do or where I might do it. So again, I realised that this sounds like a very, it, it does sound disingenuous to say, oh, I never thought in terms of a career, but I never thought in terms of a career. As I got older, I was really intrigued by this idea that you could do work and it would be interesting. So I think I think I was always then motivated by the idea of, oh, am I interested in doing this and can it also sort of pay my bills at the same time? I never had a long-term strategy or much of a strategy at all. 
So I feel as if as time has passed, you know, I've done something, I've enjoyed it, I've learned from it, I've put a lot into it. And then I've sort of moved on to something else that was that fortunately for me, I've also enjoyed and learned from and, you know, sometimes more than others. But I've always been a little bit intrigued by people who have a sort of clarity of vision and think, oh, I want to, I want to end up over there. And therefore, these are the steps that I need to take. It just hasn't been my way of doing things. I suppose it's also quite fortunate, though, to for some people to plot that out and to have it go that way, because there are so many other factors yeah. that come into play that it's not always the case that you can actually have a strategy or a clear oh, vision. And I, wouldn't, I don't think that either approach or anywhere on that continuum is, is better than another. Mm. I know that I'm just, uh, you know, perhaps I'm just not a good planner. As I say, I've been intrigued by, and I have worked with people who've really known, you know, where they wanted to get to and what the steps might be. For me, it just hasn't been that way. I love the idea that things kind of come in from the side that you're not necessarily expecting. And then you might sort of consider them. Whereas I think that for me, if I'd been too focused on getting to a certain place, I might not have sort of noticed some of those things. But it's so personal and so individual. And I think part of, you know, part of what we all do is we all just try and sort of land in that place where actually we've got a way of, I don't even want to say progressing, because I'm not sure that's, you know, that's not the right word. But we all kind of navigate a way through, hopefully in the way that suits us. I think what you raised there about this kind of concept of working for pleasure or getting enjoyment out of the work you do is interesting. And so I sort of have a two part question and it might be that they arrive at the same answer. But the first one is, you know, what was your official, your first official job in film? And the other is kind of what was the first job that you got pleasure out of in film? It's the same job. So the first official job that I had in film was a job as media officer at Corner House in Manchester. So Corner House was, uh, you probably know, but it was kind of the precursor to home. So Mm -hmm. it was a three screen independent cinema set up by somebody with a huge amount of vision and housed in a building that also had three contemporary art galleries, a bookshop a bar, a cafe. And it was a very cool venue. I applied for the job having not been to Corner House. And then I went and had a look at it and thought, wow, I could really imagine working here. I just, I loved the architecture of the building apart from anything else. The reason I sort of applied for that job and I think got it was because I had come from a a sort of academic background. I'd also been active in the independent film scene in Sheffield. And this was a job that was within the cinemas department, but it was organising all of the events and talks and courses and things that contextualised the cinema programme. So it took my experience in education, if you like, and married that with my my love of cinema, which at that point was very much, I mean, it's still a kind of developing area for me and always will be. But at that time, I wasn't somebody, you know, I said it right at the beginning, you know, I hadn't studied film. I wasn't particularly cinephile. You know, I was interested in film and interested in learning more. And I'd done enough filmmaking to realise being a filmmaker wasn't for me. I mean, I enjoyed it, but I didn't have, you know, there were not sort of burning sort of stories that I needed to tell Mm. and whilst I had been in Sheffield there was a fantastic art house kind of rep cinema called the Anvil in Sheffield that was programmed by a really kind of maverick cinephile guy called Dave Godin and 
going to the Anvil had made me really understand how much amazing cinema existed that people were not really getting to see. So at that point, I knew that I was really much more interested in working on the exhibition side. And, and my way of sort of wriggling in was to use my background in education and then get myself into a, a kind of film exhibition environment. What kind of events were you putting on? Because it occurs to me that now events are just a pillar of kind of film exhibition and, you know, every film it, it seems that, that is released goes on like a Q&A tour. But I don't know whether that was necessarily the case, you know, when you first started out in Corner House. So did it feel quite groundbreaking? Were you sort of inventing what kind of events to put on? Talk to um, me a little bit about that. Well, I wish I could say that I was, but actually the 1980s in film exhibition was all about this thing called integrated practice. And so actually a lot of the things that we take for granted now is kind of like you say, every film has a, a sort of Q&A tour. That was something that the sort of independent sector was doing a lot of at the time. And that idea of kind of giving context to the work that you were showing, which was something that was inherent both in the thematic programming that you might do, the juxtapositions of certain kinds of films. So it was really all about context. So the kind of events that I was putting on would have been pretty, I don't want to say common, but all of the sort of big exhibition venues at the time, and they were, a lot of them were sort of just developing. So places like Watershed or the Tyneside Cinema, for instance, would have mm -hmm. had a similar programme of work. So it would be everything from, you know, eight to 10 week evening courses on masculinity in cinema or you know the problematic nature of visual anthropology we did quite a lot of that in Manchester because there was a big visual anthrop anthropology department at the at Granada Television for instance right. so lots of quite critical like critically engaged courses through to the more regular sort of Q&A type things I think the first Q&A that I did at Corner House was with Derek Jarman. I was really nervous. He was just delightful. I couldn't have wished for a better person to do my first one with. So it was all of those things from kind of one-off events, lots of talks, lots of real critical interrogation, I guess, of the of the programme. I mean, I'm sort of invigorated by the fact that some of those ideas that were very current then are sort of, you know, having something of a re-emergence or a renaissance mm -hmm. then. But they were absolutely integral to, to working in that sort of independent or, yeah, I mean, it was sort of independent sector at the time. And I'm wondering what you enjoyed or what particularly suited you about working in exhibition, you know, why, why you felt that you found a home there and have kind of continued to work in that space. It's a cliche, isn't it? But I sort of loved everything about it. I mean, in a way, so perhaps no surprise that I'm kind of sitting here now. I think I'm the perpetual student. I think I just always want to know stuff and I want to know more and I want to learn new things. So, you know, it's the real cliche about working in film exhibition, isn't it? That you that you just get to sort of watch films and talk about them all day. And of course, that is not, that is so far from what we do. And yet it is also at the heart of what we do. So I went to Corner House, you know, I moved from Sheffield, which had been a great city to be in, in the sort of mid eighties. I moved to Manchester, a great city to be in for music at the end of the eighties and into the nineties. 
you know, city with a real kind of radical sense of itself. And I spent my time working on the sort of contextualizing program around a body of cinema that I was discovering for the first time, really. You know, I didn't, you know, most of the films that were screening at Corner House, not just the new films, but the repertory parts of the program or the thematic parts of the program, I didn't know those films. I hadn't seen them before. You know, I'd grown up watching film on telly, but I didn't, you know, didn't have a massive knowledge of cinema. So in a sense, for me, the pleasure was that I was sort of alongside when I was thinking about, well, what what do we need to know about this work? What do I need to know about it? What people, what might be people be interested in? And I still have that. And I'm always kind of wanting to know more. You didn't ask me what I didn't like, but it was a thing that I discovered early on that I didn't like. And which, again, has sort of stayed with me is I didn't like those people that I encountered who used their knowledge as a sort of weapon. So when I first came into the world of independent exhibition, there was some, and I was really reminded of this last week when I read about the death of Romaine Hart from Mainline Pictures. When I first came into the sector, there were a number of women and Romaine was one of them who really kind of reached out to me and supported me. And I'm hugely appreciative of that. At the same time, I encountered some, I wish it wasn't the case, but I encountered a lot of men working in the sector whose uh, sort of customary uh, way of operating was to always, you know, be saying very snobbily, oh, you haven't seen X, Y or Z. Mm And initially that I found that quite intimidating. And then I just found it so aggravating. And so I think it again, this is a, you know, this is a definite tangent. But if I think about sort of connections that run through the different jobs that I've had, I've never wanted to be the person who says, oh, you haven't seen X, Y, or Z, you know, kind of, and somehow that's your failing because that hasn't been my experience of it. Mm-hmm. And I certainly don't want to make anyone feel that they are somehow lacking because they mm-hmm. haven't seen something because it's just like, well, how amazing. You've still got that to see. So I really thought early on about what what is this world that I'm coming into and what, of course, it's a very long answer to what did I love about it, but I think it is important to also say what I didn't love about mm-hmm. it, which was the sort of snobbishness and the exercise of knowledge as a sort of way of sedimenting someone's position and power. I think it's really interesting that if we reject the idea of like career progression as like the thing that you should be like striving towards and recenter it as learning or education and, and each job just providing you a new, you know, canvas or, or space in which to learn. I think that's kind of really important. And therefore, I think it's a good time to kind of segue into the programming role at the BFI London Film Festival and, and why that was something that you wanted to do and perhaps what you felt that you could learn from it. I agree with you about that idea of the sort of rejection of career progression. But again, I really do recognise that it's not not everybody has the sort of luxury of being able to just think about what was possible for me and, you know, for me to be able to just think about, Mm -hmm. is this, what am I learning? Is this interesting? Now, I think that's a much harder sort of methodology, if you like. And lots of people are just not going to be in that position. With that caveat, the job at the BFI, so by the time, 
time I came to that job, I'd gone away and worked as a funder for a bit. And then I came back to Corner House and I had been programming and running the cinemas for a few years. So I'd been the cinemas director at Corner House for a few years, uh, another job which I really loved and which I had to be absolutely persuaded away from. And I was persuaded for a number of reasons. Whilst I'd been working at Corner House, I'd started a couple of small festivals as part of the year-round programme. And I was quite interested in festivals as an area of work. And one of the things that I felt at the time, which I don't feel now, is that festivals are the space in which you can encourage audiences to take risk, that people will engage with work in a festival environment that they might not engage with in a sort of year-round venue programme. As I say, I don't believe that now because I think that if you work year-round in a venue, what you do is you build a relationship of trust with your audience. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the time, I was like, oh, this is great. A festival could provide the environment to, to do that. I think I also had just reached a point where, you know, I'd been running the cinemas at Corner House for a few years. I'd worked at Corner House in total for eight or nine years. So it was sort of ready for a change. As I say, I had been thinking maybe I would leave anyway and I was thinking about going to live in New York because I just was very invigorated by New York as a city but part of what brought me to the BFI was the colleagues that I would be working with there so Adrian Wharton who was the head of the festival at that point was someone that I had known from we both started out in regional exhibition at the same time so you know he was someone who I knew that I could work with well we had done some projects uh, kind of together before But the idea of extending my, like getting to learn about how festivals work, I guess, was one of the things that I was interested in. And this idea of being able to persuade audiences to take risks on different kind of work. The the other thing that I would say about that I learned very quickly or that was a quick change for me was all of the work that I'd done until that point had really been me thinking about audiences, you know, what might work with audiences, how might audiences find a route into this work, how do we make this work, uh, you know, kind of relevant to audiences. And even by the time I'd done my first year at the LFF, and also what was then the London Lesbian and Gay Film Festival and is now Flair, because I had a responsibility for across both festivals but I really started to think much more about what do filmmakers need so I still kept that idea of the audience but I started to think much more about what do filmmakers need and what can festivals do for filmmakers and I was quite that was the moment when I sort of noticed that was quite a surprise because because that just hadn't really featured in the work that I'd been doing until then but it was a very definite sort of turning point for me and I think in a way that those two things then have become sort of mm. equally important in the work that I've done since then. And I guess continues to be in the festival space you know like it's it's such a strong thread now that runs through most festivals that they have some kind of lab or or even, you know, with the inviting filmmakers to kind of come and speak about their work. I think there's one one more thing that I would add about why I wanted to come and work on the festival or why I was persuaded mm. to come and work on the festival, specifically the LFF. And this is a and this is a sort of slightly arrogant assumption, I think, or position. So my experience at the London Film Festival at that point had been as a person working in a venue in Manchester, who would come to the London Film Festival every year as an industry delegate. Mm -hmm. And I had not enjoyed my experience of coming to the festival. I felt like it was not a welcoming 
environment. And I had even seen a couple of screenings where it wasn't just, I mean, in a way, I guess I could have understood it, you know, regional programmer, not exactly, you know, someone that the festival would necessarily be, you know, rushing to embrace. That's, uh, you know, didn't like that, but I guess I can understand it. But I was at a couple of screenings where filmmakers were also like didn't seem to be being well looked after but I didn't find the festival at all hospitable or inclusive if you were not part of a certain little kind of coterie and I didn't like that and I'd been to other festivals that had felt different so I guess I had that sort of arrogant idea that actually there were some things at the LFF that needed to change and actually that I would be quite interested in in trying to make the festival feel at least a bit more kind of hospitable and inclusive. And so then how did you progress from your role as programmer to artistic director, where presumably you're at the vanguard of the festival and therefore able to enact even more change? Yeah, I mean, it was really just through a series of, oh, it's very dull. It was just, oh, it was just internally promoted. So after a year as the programmer, I was promoted to be deputy director um, and then when Adrian Wooten, who was the director, left the festival, I guess by that point I'd been the deputy director for quite some years. We'd restructured things a little so that the, there wasn't quite such a sort of jump between the responsibility of the deputy director and the artistic director. Adrian left. I was promoted. I was promoted to the role of director and then I asked that the title be changed to artistic director because I wanted it to be clear that I was still very involved in the programming and the sort of curatorial direction of the festival because not as you know not all festival directors are Mm. some festivals some festival directors work much more on the you know sort of business side of the festival and whilst that was part of the job I also you know I didn't want to lose the bit of the job that I loved most which was to you know be working on the program. And considering you asked for that change I'm wondering what artistic direction means to you because to me it can sometimes maybe obscure or it's just one of those titles that can encompass so many different aspects of the job so what was it you were doing and yeah what does that title mean to you? Yeah I mean I sort of take the point about it sort of obscuring as I say for me I wanted that word in there just to make it clear that I was you know that in a way what what I had was I had the sort of overarching you know I had the view across the program if you like so that idea of the sort of cultural remit of the festival the sort of but would stop with me now that doesn't mean that I was you know the I mean you know an artistic vision is never I guess sometimes it is about one person, but it, for me, it wasn't about me coming in and going, here we are, here's the artistic vision, here's what we're going to do. It, that wasn't the process at all, especially in a in a festival like the LFF, which is a big festival. It has a lot of stakeholders. It has a lot of people who are very invested. It relies on the kind of knowledge and contribution and you know expertise of lots of people. So for me, the idea of being an artistic director is partly about saying, okay, what's our what's our rationale? You know, what's the raison d'etre for the festival? What should we be doing? What do we need to be doing now? Is the sort of direction that we've been, you know, sort of putting our energy into, is that right for now? How do we how do we continually sort of refresh? Because you know, artistic 
direction isn't a thing it's a process it's always about you know it should be a very and it also should be not even a dialogue what what would be more like it would be it's like a pluralogue you know it has to be a sort of very active thing and you know I, I don't you know I don't I mean maybe there are examples where you, it is much more one person coming in with a sort of a great vision I'm not a great visionary kind of person I'm somebody who can sort of put their ear to the ground I think and get a sense of okay what might we need and mm-hmm. how might we sort of achieve that so that's a very that sounds really vague I know but it's a long-winded way of saying you know that as artistic director of the festival I would have the sort of uh, I would have the view over mm-hmm. the program if you like Alongside that, I would be doing all the other stuff that a festival director does. So I would be, you know, making sure that the money was there, that the team was there and kind of hopefully working well together and motivated that we had venues to put the festival in, that we had a decent marketing strategy and that we knew how to employ it, that, you know, the industry side of things was ticking over. So you're really kind of keeping that sort of eye on everything. Mm. But as I say, for me, the real heart of the festival was in its kind of cultural program and I you know and that was the part of it that I really loved and that you know I wanted to be clear that in you know sort of moving up because it is seen as up you know it's moving up through the ranks of the festival that I didn't lose that because I think often you the you get promoted and you you don't manage to keep the parts of the job that you really felt passionately about Mm. and I really felt passionately about that I want to tie together a couple of ideas here that you brought up and and see if it comes out as a question you said when you were programming you know there were a few things having attended the festivals as a delegate that you wanted a change and now being in this position to do so how did you go about enacting that change you know who were you in plural with who were you listening to in order to kind of uh, inform those ideas and then how did you go about implementing them you know who was I sort of talking with and listening to again it was uh it wasn't really too different from how I'd worked before so it was a mixture of some colleagues inside the BFI but mostly um, people who were outside the BFI who were either already involved with the festival or more likely not involved with the festival but perhaps they could be I mean I have to say that when I came to the festival I think the fact that I came from that sort of very independent background was, I mean, that maybe wasn't one of the reasons why I got the job, but it was certainly something that I brought with me. So when Adrian was running the festival, Adrian was much more integrated in and embedded with, I would say, the sort of industry end of the ecology, if you like. So at that point, when I was programming, Adrian would be the person who was, you know, making a lot of spending more time talking with, you know, distributors and industry stakeholders. And that meant that I was able to, you know, talk to, I don't know, people like the Halloween Society, who now, who sort of now sort of migrated and became the London Short Film Festival, or, you know, people working in that more, you know, whole range of kind of community groups or interest groups, or people who were, would have been seen as somehow, you know, more marginal, if you like, but actually were doing really, were doing really interesting work. And selfishly, I guess, were doing the kind of work that I was interested in, because, of course, you know, it, the people that we work with are always, you know, that's always 
driven by you know mm. what we know about or what we would like to know about or what we find interesting so someone who had come into that job who wasn't me might have had a whole different roster of people that they had sort of consulted with so on the one hand you know the festival did do a big piece of industry what's the word consultation which resulted in some things like you know the industry at that time were very pro the idea that the festival should become a competitive festival actually not something personally that I was remotely interested in but the industry were and so the festival kind of moved in that direction again that's that all sounds kind of very vague but the process was sort of I think two things were probably happening I think there was a sort of strategic set of conversations going on with industry stakeholders for instance and then there was perhaps a more organic set of conversations which was just me going I'm new here who are the people that I think are, you know, doing interesting work that in a way that isn't about sort of co-opting their work, but is a way about saying, would you like a more visible, you know, like, is there something that we can, uh, you know, work with you on? I think that sort of more organic process was going on too. But again, it's really, I think that work is very delicate because it 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 shouldn't be. I think one of the things that I was always uh, like not skirting around, but very mindful of. You know, the festival was comparatively well resourced. I mean, not compared with big international festivals, but it had resources that a lot of smaller organisations didn't have. And so there is always that question of how do you potentially work with people where there's where you're starting out from an uh, an imbalance of power. Like we have the money, we have the profile, we'd like to work with you, but but I don't want that to be, oh, here we are, like munificent, larger organisation, you know, kind of in a very sort of patronising way, wanting to sort of, you know, somehow promote your work. And also, as I say, really being very mindful of not wanting to sort of co-opt and exploit the people that we might work with. I probably spent quite a lot of time really sort of agonising about how to do that. But to me, that was important because, you know, there is something about if you work on a festival like the LFF, you have some sort of responsibilities and you have to be careful, I think, about, you know, not just who you work with, but how you work with them. I'm really pleased that some of the conversations around sort of the ethics of curatorial work are so foregrounded now because we really have to think about them and we always had to think about them, but we didn't always do it. And then, you know, kind of segueing more into um, your time at NFTS, I'm wondering what prompted your decision to leave the BFI, you know, why it felt like the right time to move on from that role. This is a bit sort of well rehearsed because I had to have a, you know, because I got asked a lot about why I was leaving because running the LFF was an amazing job. And it's a very, it's a job that I know that lots of people would like or would have liked at the time. But I am, I'm a really huge believer in cultural renewal, sort of on every level. So I'm certainly interested in cultural renewal for myself. You know, we spend a huge amount of our lives at work, uh, most of us. And actually, you know, I, I reached a point where I was thinking, well, 
I think by the time I left the BFI, I'd been working on the festivals in one way or another for 13 or 14 years. That's a big chunk of anybody's working life. So I was I was getting ready for a change. The BFI decided to restructure and they decided to put together the festival, head of festivals with head of BFI Southbank and make that one job, which I believed wasn't workable. I didn't want to be that person. And I'd already started training as a psychotherapist by then. So I wanted to give some more time to that. Yeah, it just felt like it was sort of time. I also felt a little bit, again, I probably don't feel like this now, but I think at the time I probably felt like I was getting a bit too old to do that job. I mean, it's very, you know, running the LFF is it is an amazing job and it's also pretty exhausting and it's very cyclical. So, you know, in any given year, I would be able to tell you where I would be on a particular date. I also was a bit weary of the fact that the programming deadlines were all in the summer. So I never got to have a summer holiday, which was a bit tedious. And I felt a little bit at that time as if the industry was starting to be like the industry part of the industry was starting to be somewhere that I wasn't too sure that I wanted to work there's a lot of politics at play in any big festival job and there were some at play when I was at the LFF most of which I sort of navigated around simply by not really engaging with them so all of those things that you hear about on festivals where people sales agents or distributors will say well you can have this film but you also need to take that one Uh, I wasn't really subjected to too much of that and when I was I just politely would decline but in that last year that I worked on the festival I felt as if there was a little bit more of that going on and I started to feel that people were uh, you know there was sort of more pressure coming which I didn't which I wasn't enjoying yeah I felt like I was it was I was in more of a public role than I had really bargained for Mm. there would be times when I would be doing the red carpet for opening night when people would not ask me about the film but they'd ask me about what I was wearing or that just started to become much more visible it wasn't a part of the role that I enjoyed at all so for lots of reasons it was a good time to leave but it was but it was really hard because I did love that job and I also you know there were things that I was able to do in that role that I was really pleased to have been able to achieve but that also fed into why it was right to leave because you know there were certain things about the curatorial profile of the festival and the way in which I feel like that became kind of quite robust whilst I worked there and also some of the sort of financial underpinnings of the festival where we had managed to get sort of three-year funding from the film council which was from a film council that was actually quite hostile to our curatorial aspirations Mm -hmm. so you know well done us you know there were the festival had had quite a lot of change and a degree of reorientation but it was also at a point where I felt like it needed to have another sort of you know another refresh and I'd already done that once and I didn't feel like I was the right person to do that 
for a second time. The, the next thing, obviously, that I want to ask is how you arrived at the NFTS, which is kind of where you are now and, and what attracted you to this role of head of screen arts and course leader for film studies, programming and curation MA. I mean, it's hilarious because once again, I have a job that I didn't, not that I sort of, well, I have a job that I wasn't looking for, I suppose. So I left the BFI, I retrained as a psychotherapist. Whilst I was doing that, I worked on a number of other international festivals as a programme advisor or programme consultant. So the nice bit of the LFF job, i.e. watching films and saying what I thought about them without any of the other, you know, sort of more responsible bits of it. So I had so I had this sort of parallel, I had sort of parallel things going on, if you like, continuing to work in film, but very much thinking that I would be a psychotherapist. I set up my psychotherapy practice and I thought it would take a really long time to, for that to become established. And it went really quickly. And suddenly the balance fell all wrong. You know, I had left the BFI. When I first left the BFI, I sort of thought I was done with film, which as an exercise in, you know, my own lack of self-awareness is, is hilarious, really. For a start, I don't know how I thought I was going to support myself whilst I was training as a psychotherapist, but I thought I was sort of done with film. Mm-hmm. Then I wasn't, and I did this all this kind of festival work. And then I qualified, but suddenly, like, being a psychotherapist a lot of the time and working in film only a little bit of the time, that also didn't feel right. I f- it just wasn't the balance that I was looking for. I had already had a sort of very limited relationship with the NFTS. I'd been in and taught a few sessions on festivals from time to time. So I knew I liked the environment. Anyway, the job came up at the school at a time when I was looking for more film work. And in a way, it sort of harks right back to that conversation we were having about my first job at Corner House, which was all about context and giving context Mm -hmm. to the work that's screened and how we think about the process of showing films to audiences. So the job here combines lots of different things that I'm interested in. You know, the screen arts part of the job means that I work with students across the school to provide a sort of historical and critical education. Sounds a bit grand, but, you know, I show lots of films, we talk about them, I bring in speakers. Essentially, it's the job that I was doing at Corner House 30 years ago in an in a sort of different environment. Mm. And I enjoy that. And then running the MA is a again, it's about being engaged in a very active conversation the whole time about what we do in this thing that we sort of refer to curation, but we sometimes talk about as programming because we don't really understand the difference and we don't really know if it matters what we call it. Um, But again, it's a very, it's all about active process, if you like. So the job came up, I applied quite dull, you know, the job came up, I applied, I got it. I didn't want a full-time job. The job is unequivocally full-time. So now I work full-time at the school. I work as a psychotherapist on Saturdays. And one of the joyous things about being at the school is heads of department are expected to be practitioners. So as part of my work at the school, I also get to still work on, you know, some festivals um, outside of the school. I'm really interested in how you go about like devising a syllabus, you know, one that remains refreshing, culturally relevant, you know, draws on the history of curation, but 
speaks to what's happening with curation and programming now you know where where do you go to create something like that in a sense I was lucky because I arrived here and someone else had done the hard work of you know drawing up a syllabus and uh, getting the course validated I think if I was asked to do that from scratch I would just wouldn't know where to start I think what I'm good at is I'm good at the sort of editing and tinkering and going actually no that's not quite that's not quite what we need so I brought two things initially to sort of looking at the syllabus and thinking about whether it was okay the first one was what would it have been really useful for me to know when I started that I didn't know and that I've spent almost 30 years bloody well trying to figure out like what would have been helpful and how do we like integrate that into the syllabus and then the other thing was luckily I had just come from retraining as a psychotherapist so I'd just done an MA where I had you know figured out what sort of worked in teaching and what didn't Mm -hmm. or at least what worked for me so so I brought some stuff that was also from a kind of completely other discipline uh, to put into it as a kind of starting point it's fair to say that the first year that we ran the course and it's a two-year course but the first year that we ran the course we were really just figuring it out as we went along and the only way to do that was to also be really honest with the students who knew they were coming in for the first year and that it was all a bit sort of this way and see if it works and tell us if it works and tell us if it doesn't work and what would have been better. And that was really great to have that year where for a, for a year we just had one group of students and I worked with them. I spent a lot of time with them mm. and then they moved into the second year and the new year came in and, you know, sort of on we went. But the reason why I like working here, which again goes back to the, oh, I always like to, like always have to be learning other things is the syllabus already looks quite different to what it did in that first year because the way in which we watch films, the way in which we get hold of films, the way in which we review films, all, I mean, you know how much that's changed in the last five or six years, which is the time that the course has been running so it has to so it has to be sort of very responsive I think it relies a lot on the students telling us what sort of works and doesn't work but also people who teach on the course are very much also sort of practitioners so you know we're all sort of doing things that in a way are it's not this all I can say it's not the kind of course where you can come in and go okay this is the syllabus and I'm just going to teach this syllabus now with these filmmakers and these texts until I retire a that would be sort of deadly dull anyway but you can't do that in this environment it's so much more it has to be uh, you know sort of changing all the time and of course there's a big emphasis at the school on two things one is a kind of developing the sort of individual voice of the practitioner, whether that's a filmmaker or a games designer or a you know production designer or a or, or a curator. We take relatively small groups of students on the courses and they get to follow their own interests. So that's important. Um, but the other thing that's really important is to replicate as much as possible what students will encounter when they go out into the real world so we spend a lot of time on students being talking to people who work in the relevant bits of the film culture or the film industry students go on placements 
the curating students get to put on grad projects, which are often kind of in venue seasons. But obviously last year they all had to be not last year, the year before, they all had to be online. So again, by necessity, we all had to learn how to do online exhibition in the same way that our comrades in the world of kind of film exhibition were also having to learn that as well. So it's it's the thing that, you know, that more than anything, it's the thing that sort of keeps me in the job, if you like, is that idea of we have to sort of always be refreshing. So it's also about every year, looking at who we've got coming in to talk with the students, thinking about, you know, again, how we sort of might refresh that, asking them who they'd like to hear from. Because, you know, there's something there's something great, I think, about working at post-grad level where actually then again, you know, it is much more of a conversation about, well, I think this might be interesting, but is it is it interesting or is it only me that's interested in that? And what would you rather have? Mm-hmm. And again, back to the sort of selfish part of that is then that's me also like hearing from people that I wouldn't necessarily think to get in contact with or you know it's such a sort of invigorating process. I really like that idea of kind of being alive to individual interest or individual practice and considering the fact that you brought up the fact that you have a psychotherapy business I'm wondering whether that has any bearing on you know how you interact with and work in the film industry you know whether it's given you other considerations or ways of doing what you do. I think I always had this sense that the two areas were quite aligned. And obviously at the level of theory, you know, film theory has drawn quite heavily on psychotherapy over the years. But I think it really, in a way, I wish that I had trained as a psychotherapist before I was running the LFF, because I think I would have understood a lot more about, you know, what motivates people and also what do people kind of need you know I've had a lot of roles now where I've worked with quite large teams or large groups of people and I think that question of you know okay we're like how do we work together what do you need in order to get the most out of what you're doing or you know feel like you're contributing to in the way that you would want to so I think there's lots of things about what motivates us I'm I'm endlessly fascinated by group dynamics and how people work in a group and who they are in the group. I think about it in the context, you know, I really like working in the environment of a film school where people are making things, but making things, and that includes, you know, putting together a thematic programme if you're a curator or, you know, putting on on an event. That's a very exposing process. You know, you're really putting yourself out there. And in the end, however much that's a kind of collaborative or a cooperative effort, at some point, it's quite likely that you're going to have to sort of step up and kind of own the work that you've done. And that's really exposing. How, How do we, you know, how do we prepare ourselves and each other for that? How do we support each other in doing that? It feels really important to me. And just the wider conversations that are going on in the film industry now about how the industry treats people and the implications of that on people's mental health. I mean, I'm really, I'm really pleased that those wider discussions are much more on the agenda, but I certainly see it here in terms of how how students are really having to, as I say, you know, kind of put themselves out there and, you know, how we kind of support and work with that. 
I understand you've also been a mentor for industry schemes such as Guiding Lights and Women of the World. I'm wondering, you know, what being a mentor offers you on a kind of personal, selfish level and, and why you think it's important to pass on your own knowledge and guidance to whoever you're mentoring or the next generation. Yeah, I don't really see it as passing on knowledge. I think it is really about, I think what it gives me is I quite, this is awful because it sounds like I'm sort of pathologizing people who definitely do not need to be pathologized but I quite like a sort of I'm quite good at solving problems and I quite like a sort of knotty problem to solve now that isn't always what happens in mentoring but for me mentoring is always about you know something that I've sort of said before about when you work with people it's always about okay what like what do you need you know if Mm -hmm. I'm working with you as your mentor what is it that you need do you know what you need or is part of what we're doing figuring out together what it is that you need and then how you might get to that so in a way that's very similar I think to the sort of therapeutic process but obviously being a mentor is not the same as being a a kind of therapist but but the process is a bit similar because in mentoring as in therapy the person that you're mentoring is the sort of expert they're the expert on themselves and what they need but they might there might be some conversations that we can have that are about really trying to figure that out mm-hmm. but they're doing the work I'm only like prompting and then if there's anything that I can think of that might be strategically useful either because I've done it but more usually because I didn't do that and it might have been better if I had you know it's like okay it's less about saying I've got a body of knowledge to share I've made a load of decisions some of which were the right ones and some of which weren't like are there things in that that might be helpful but in the end it's always about that the person that you're working with and what they need and what helps them get to that I'd also love to know if there's something that you consider to be the biggest learning curve of your career uh, thus far, or or to frame it differently, something that maybe you'd have benefited from learning earlier. I mean, almost every, I mean, (laughs) like where to start? I have been very bad at saying no to things. So I think it sounds absurd, but it, I think recognizing that it's fine to say no to things and to do that without going into a long and tedious explanation of why you're saying no. Uh, Because I think, you know, when I have said no to things in the past, I've quite often spent a lot of time justifying saying no. Now Now I'm actually quite good at saying no. And I'm also quite good at saying no, but I know somebody who could really help you with that because that's true. You know, it's like there are so many, you know, I love that thing of kind of going, uh, actually, this isn't, you know, I'm really not the right person or I really don't have time for this, but but I also know somebody who who could, particularly when it's about, you know, making introductions for other women who are coming into the sector. Mm -hmm. Something that's always been important to me is that sort of sorority of women, you know, who work in this area and, you you know, who it is, I've always found it really helpful to be able to phone somebody up and say, I'm really stuck with this. I don't really know what to do. Do you have any suggestions? And similarly, then, you know, the sort of quid pro quo of that. 
think about what matters to you, think about what your own kind of almost ethical position is. And, you know, I don't think that, you know, I don't think that compromise is a, you know, kind of dirty word, but I do think you have to kind of keep an eye on, you know, your own sort of integrity, if you Mm. like, and be careful about where you compromise, but also recognise that, you know, there are sort of, you can't fight on all fronts. So I've always been quite a believer in, like you save your energy for the sort of important battles, if you like, and you don't get kind Mm. of too caught up in the stuff that actually in the end isn't, you know, isn't really all that important. And then finally, I'd love to know if there's a film from a woman director that you consider to be something of a hidden gem or or just something that you'd like to watch and would like to recommend today. Yeah, so there are, I mean, again, like we could spend another hour to (laughs) but I thought about it a lot for today. And there's one, there's a film that I've been trying to get for ages to show the students, which is a film called uh, Bedevil. It's by an Australian Indigenous artist called Tracy Moffat. Now, Tracy Moffat is really known as a kind of photographer. She's a, you know, she's a successful artist. She represented, she was the first kind of Indigenous Australian woman artist, I think, to represent Australia at the Venice Biennale a few years ago but she made some films early on in her career so she made a short a number of shorts one of which is called Nice Coloured Girls which sometimes gets screened but Bedevil which is a sort of portmanteau or sort of anthology film like three different ghost stories that's really hard to find so I'm on a mission to find that and to screen it and then the other one more recently and not completely not seen does get screened from time to time but a film that I screened in I think the last year at the LFF was a film called Double Tide by Sharon Lockhart and she's also a sort of artist filmmaker and she worked a bit in the past with James Benning and obviously you know James is in the public eye at the moment because of Erica Bolson's book on 10 skies and the screenings around that but Sharon Lockhart makes really interesting films often on the subject of work and Double Tide is a really beautiful film it just follows in a very kind of slow cinema way the work of a woman who's a clam digger in Maine and it's about the sort of repetitive nature of her work but also it's about her relationship with the sort of natural environment Um, and unlike a lot of slow cinema it's less than 100 minutes long so it's 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 about duration but not endurance which is (laughs) a kind of slow cinema a really beautiful film so I would very much recommend that amazing I can't speak for uh, my listeners but I thank you for bringing those filmmakers to my attention because I hadn't heard of either of them and thank you so much for your time today and for your perception and eloquence it's been a, a real pleasure speaking with you thank you Sandra well I've really enjoyed it and I've really enjoyed your sort of flexibility in terms of the like meandering and the directions that we've gone in Thank you for listening to this episode of Best Girl Grip. If you liked what you heard, please do rate, review and subscribe. It really does help to get the word out. If this is your first time listening, there's a whole bunch of episodes to keep you busy on Apple Podcasts, Spotify and Acast. But if you're up to date, hold tight and I'll be back next Tuesday with a brand new episode. Bye.